Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Nikita Ved. Uh, she's a Novo Nordisk postdoctoral research fellow in Dr. Duncan Sparrow's group in the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, her work. I could, I could describe it, but I'll probably bungle it. So uh, Nikita, welcome. And uh, if you would, just describe your research. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so my research really focuses on how diabetes during pregnancy causes birth defects in the embryo or focus on how it forms heart defect in the infant. Yeah, my, my wife had uh, gestational diabetes with her first child, but she was very careful and uh, you know immediately changed her diet and ate well. And I guess hopefully the only consequences that our, you know, our daughter was a little bit heavier than, than other babies, but uh, she seems to be okay. I didn't realize the uh, the problems could be so so large. So, you know, what happens when a mother has uh, diabetes in pregnancy? What can happen? So this is actually where um, uh, a lot of uh, I think uh, things like this podcast can do a lot of a lot of help because, um, like you said, you didn't really know. Many people don't know that one of the major complications of diabetes, in addition to blindness and kidney disease, heart disease, is actually um, if being pregnant and having diabetes because. Not only can it increase the rate of miscarriage by between 15 to 25%, but also increases the uh, rate of your child having a birth defect. And so in particular with diabetes, it increases the rate of having any birth defect by up to 30%. And considering... Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, it's, huge. it's quite a lot. And this is defects of all kinds, not just heart defect. Okay? Let me ask you a quick question here. Um, does uh, science differentiate between women that have diabetes and then get pregnant versus ones that get it because they're pregnant, I guess, gestational diabetes? Uh, so that's a very good question. It's, it's tricky to recapitulate um, in the lab because um, to induce diabetes in an in vivo model, for example, say using a rodent model or what have you, any drug you might do to artificially induce it ultimately would be harmful to the embryo anyway. The drug itself, an example is um, streptocytosin. Uh, it's commonly used to induce diabetes in rodents, let's say. Now, if you induce that in a pregnant mouse, the embryos will have defects regardless of maternal diabetes because that drug is so toxic and crosses the placenta. So scientifically, we typically will use a model of pre-gestational diabetes, i.e. Um, someone having diabetes prior to conception. Now, clinically, of course, this is well delineated. You do get um, women that have diabetes prior to conception, and you do have those that develop it at pregnancy. But that, too, is complicated by the fact that many of these women may be borderline diabetic at the time of, of conception. They don't realize it um, because for whatever reason, for example, women are having babies later in life, um, and that's sort of around the time where one might develop type 2 diabetes or they might be a little bit more sedentary and thus perhaps overweight. And again, not knowing they could be borderline and that metabolic stress of being pregnant just pushes them over the edge. 
Yeah, is it a different condition? I know the line is blurred, like you're saying, but is I mean, does science recognize that the the diabetes is different, or is it that the person was borderline and then they became diabetic while they were pregnant? Or is, is there such a thing where you only you know something happens in pregnancy and you you're diabetic just for the pregnancy? So gestational diabetes, traditional gestational diabetes, one that isn't say blurred by um, being borderline at the time of conception, will typically disappear when the baby is born. That is just a temporary uh, metabolic disturbance. However, these women are more predisposed to developing type 2 diabetes later on or gestational diabetes again in additional pregnancies. Um, But like you said before, clinically, can you um, see between the blurred lines? It's a little bit tricky to know if a woman is borderline at the time of conception because many women don't really know when they have conceived. In fact, around 40% of pregnancies are unintended and thus many women might not know to check their blood glucose or their metabolic state until well into the pregnancy. Huh, interesting. So, yeah, this is tough. Um, I mean, I was going to ask you, what if you just get data on thousands of women that uh, appeared to be at least pre-diabetic and, you know, were their conception rates different, were their babies born healthy or not versus women that, uh, you know, were just appeared to be normal and then, uh, you know, got gestational diabetes. I mean, they've I don't know if there's enough reported data out there already, so you don't have to just focus on mice, but is there? There are, there are some data on this. The trouble is, is that uh, many different countries will uh, specify gestational diabetes slightly differently. Additionally, um, those that develop gestational diabetes, um, sometimes they, the follow-through in, in the clinic isn't, isn't necessarily great due to, say, socioeconomic circumstances or whatever. So yeah, the data are out. The data is out there. It's just difficult to unpick as well. And so that's why. And whilst we know, uh, like I said, the data out there, we know that diabetes in pregnancy, regardless of its form, either gestational or pregestational, causes defects. The real question is why it causes these defects. Some evidence shows that um, gestational diabetes and um, pre-existing diabetes have different, exert different effects on the outcome of the infant. But that study really needs to be looked into further. And I was going to ask you, what does diabetes look like, you know, throughout the gestation period? But I guess the first probably 12 weeks are completely hidden. Because like you said, a lot of women don't even know that they're pregnant. And I would guess maybe the best data is, the, I don't know, the last trimester. Like, you know, what does the data look like? Uh, what, what happens to the typical fetus when a woman is diabetic? you know, by whatever mechanism is that being studied? So this is where it gets quite complicated. Uh, Gestational diabetes isn't tested for, as uh, you may have experienced, until well into the second trimester of the pregnancy. Now, um, the formation of birth defects occurs well into the first trimester, if not the first seven to nine weeks of pregnancy. So there is a, a disconnect here between when women are tested and when these defects are actually occurring. And so for many women the damage may already be done by the time they're tested and they, they may not necessarily be able to reverse it. Yeah, I remember with our, um, with our second child, you know, my wife said, you know what, I'm just going to assume that I have it and I'm going to eat as best I can because the doctor wouldn't even test her. He's like, no, no, the protocol is to wait until this time and, you know, your, your sugar has to be at this level and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I'm not waiting. I'm just going to do it. So, yeah, it seems to be... Uh, not helpful the way the testing is done right now anyway. Absolutely not. In fact, I wish you could see me rolling my eyes because this is something that, again, I'm trying to 
change if I can through um, doing as much public engagement as possible, talking to a lot of clinicians, seeing if they will perhaps change protocol. Because testing women so late into pregnancy is um, a really, well, I think it's actually very damaging. There are other ways to look for metabolic disturbance beyond an oral glucose tolerance test, which is what I'm assuming your wife had to do. Um, they gave yep, her a, exactly. Exactly, yeah. There are other ways of doing it. There are better ways of doing it. And I think ultimately this will save lives. And even if, say, um, but this will also help the mother enormously because, you know, the, the stress that this puts on parents, an infant being born with a defect, the infant itself obviously may have to have multiple surgeries, lifelong care. They may find it difficult to uh, assimilate with their peers, but also on the parents. This is a, an enormous emotional strain for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I wonder um, what percentage of the, you know, I've heard on first time pregnancies, the miscarriage rate is very high. And then, you know, once you have a child, for some reason, it seems to be a lot lower after that but i just wonder what percentage of the uh, miscarriage rate in general or overall is caused by uh, the spontaneousness of the diabetes causing it that's tricky there because we don't necessarily have information on we don't know actually whether the diabetes is causing a miscarriage because there is such a severe defect with the embryo that it's not compatible with life and is spontaneously terminated or it's causing a uterine defect let's say and thus the um the very early embryo the blastocyst is not able to either attach or uh stick around basically so that is also uh, we don't we don't know which is the underlying problem for that would it be possible to do a study where you know pregnant women at a certain stage volunteer to eat a certain way or they're already eating a certain way and they're reporting and you can find enough difference in the way enough of them are eating to make a study out of that or you think it would be confounded by too many variables so there was a similar study on what you suggested i think it was done in france some years ago and they attempted to look at the diet of of uh, many pregnant women and they tried to monitor their health their pregnancy and the overall outcome of the pregnancy and it seems that those from a um a, i suppose a lower socioeconomic background they had to, they typically ate um, cheaper, faster food than those that were perhaps more uh, middle class, more affluent. And it's also further complica- complicated by the fact that um, some women have to work till very late in the pregnancy. And so that can add on to stress, which can also complicate things further. Okay. So what, um, what kind of defects seem to be predominant when women are diabetic during pregnancy? So the, the most common defect seen in infants of diabetic mothers are typically uh, congenital heart defects. So that is when, um, uh, so a congenital heart defect is an abnormality within the structure of the heart that is formed um, in utero, so before birth. And it can comprise of many different kinds of defects, including a, a defective heart valve, um, a defect in the wall between your ventricles, uh, so that's called a, a ventricular septal defect or one between your two atria, so an atrial septal defect, um, abnormalities in heart muscle. But the most common um, congenital heart defect is a, is a hole in the heart, uh, typically in the ventricular septum. And that is problematic because you have a mixing of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood, which will 
ultimately cause a defect in circulation, potentially heart failure, and potentially death. What about uh, longitudinally looking at, you know, people born with uh, these defects? Um, do they tend to have heart murmurs? Do they tend to have, you know, are all the problems acute and early? And are we even looking at 20, 30, 40 years down the road, what's happened to them? Or is that just, we're not there yet? So we're getting there. So yeah, these, uh, many of these patients will typically have a heart murmur. Um, but a lot of these more severe abnormalities will be treated by surgery, um, several surgical interventions. And we're only just really seeing these patients in their later years now where we can see additional defects forming. Again, um, cardiomyopathy, heart failure, some, um, but the numbers are very low to make a definitive observation. So uh, is anyone able to provide at least guidance, you know, a, a statement that says, you know, if you're um, sexually active and you have any intention at all of getting pregnant, the time is now to eat as best you can, whatever that is allowed to be defined as, because that's the critical time to make sure you have a healthy baby. Yes and no. Um, you'd really look to your um, national diabetes charities for this advice. So Diabetes UK at one point on their website did state that if you are diabetic and sexually active, you should consider, if you're not considering having a baby, you should definitely um, invest in more protection. However, I think um, people would benefit more from there being a wider campaign and not just looking to a very obscure website if they're not necessarily diabetic. Perhaps they could be um, have a high uh, body mass index and thus could be leaning towards diabetes, you know, this information should be out there. And this is what I'm trying to work on as well. I'm trying to get this information out there as much as I possibly can. Because again, uh, one, according to the World Health Organization, one in three women with diabetes are of reprodu reprodu reproductive age, i.e. they are um, at the right age to conceive. So if these women aren't necessarily informed, we could see a huge rise in birth defects in the future. Yeah, well, why do you think that uh, this is not being paid attention to very much? And do you, do you think it's actually being dismissed by people's doctors or, uh, you know, oh, you'll be fine? Or, I mean, what, what do you think happens in the clinical setting nowadays? You know, that's a very good question. I think with diabetes, I think there are some people assume there are much bigger fish to fry, you know, trying to treat the disease itself, trying to treat all the other complications. I mean, for example, diabetic blindness is the most prevalent complication of, of diabetes and to be honest more people will care about their vision it's something that more people can relate to losing your sight versus perhaps someone's baby not being born okay it may, perhaps it's that it's not necessarily very relatable however everybody knows someone that's had a child and everybody knows someone that's diabetic so I feel like it should be relatable it should gain more uh, visibility I'm not really sure why it, it isn't perhaps because Again, we know it happens, but the why is so complicated that perhaps people aren't, I don't know, they're giving up. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I haven't experienced it. And I, I forget what my wife told me. When you get pregnant, I mean, a lot of stuff changes. So your blood volume increases a lot. And, I mean, all kinds of stuff changes. I'm sure later on more than early. But are any of these changes, does that, I don't know, does that help at that time to say to the woman, hey, you know, a lot of stuff's changing. You may feel this, that, and the other. Now's the time to really, you know, pay attention to everything that's happening with you and, and look for these particular signs that would tell you uh, you're having blood sugar problems. I mean, is there, is there any, you know, do, does, do the, I don't know, I guess they call it symptoms of pregnancy, do they mask 
what people would feel are the complications of diabetes or do they heighten it? It would probably mask it. And the, common, the common traits of diabetes are tiredness, thirst, um, changes in weight. You would notice it as well. So you might think, well, I'm, I'm fatigued because I am pregnant. I'm really thirsty because I am pregnant. But so this could be one of the reasons why people don't really spot the changes in themselves earlier. But I also think there is a, a really woeful lack of, of public education in this um, from the public, the public health sector. I think as our society is becoming increasingly diabetic, I mean, the, the World Health Organization predicts that by 2045, around 630 million people globally will be affected by diabetes. And, that, and that's a massive jump from 425 million people now. So with an increasingly sedentary population, increase, and diabetes has a, a heritable characteristic, we are going to see more people becoming diabetic. This isn't going to, these numbers aren't going to get any lower. Um, infants with birth defects will probably rise. And so public education needs to be improved. I think, I think the best way to do it would be to start with, well, I think when women go for health checks or physicals or anything like that, when they're of reproductive age, I think this should be part of their exam, I suppose. Well, what, what happens when, um, I don't know if you know, but when a woman's pregnant, what, how does their perception of food change? You know, I've heard about cravings, but I don't know if it's, if it happens early on or later, I just don't remember. Um, but again, does the, do women that when they first become pregnant, do they crave, let's say things that would worsen their diabetes or do they, you know, tend to crave healthier stuff? I mean, is there a compounding effect there? So my knowledge on cravings and pregnancy is very limited, but anecdotally, from speaking with friends that have them, they, it's all, it's all over the place. Sometimes they'll crave something that's healthy and they'll think it's, um, they're, they're having a craving because of this particular point in their fetus development. Well, sometimes they'll crave something bonkers and there's no real rhyme or reason why. Uh, one thing, though, that is problematic is that a lot of women still think they need to eat for two. And that's a myth. You don't need to eat for two, especially in the earlier stages of pregnancy. In fact, the, I suppose the time to eat more is probably once you've had the baby because breastfeeding increases the need your increases the need for the woman to increase their calorie content by up to 500 calories a day sometimes. So what do you think are going to be the, um, I don't know, I mean, this is such a, a large, pervasive issue. What do you think yeah. are going to be the, the ways to, I don't know, make headway into it? Well, I think I need to, first thing, publish my work. <laughs> and then, but also I'd like to meet locally with um, our, I'd like to meet with Diabetes UK, for example, I'd like to meet with the British Heart Foundation and talk and discuss with them how we can publicize this wider, but not just stop, uh, not just stop here, perhaps maybe even work globally if I can. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just one person, obviously it wouldn't be just me, but if we could publicize this in any way we can and get people thinking about this, because the stats are, the stats are, are crazy. I mean, in a few years ago, um, the only numbers I have available, 35,000 women in the UK had some sort of diabetes during pregnancy. And of that, 7% of those women had birth, 7% of those infants of those women had birth defects. Huh. Yeah. And so the first thing I need to do is try and figure out why this happens. And if I can figure out the why, maybe I can stop it one way or another. Yeah, well, we haven't talked much about that. What, um, I don't know. What, so far, what's your inkling? What's your experimentation say is the why? 
that is still a little bit unclear. But um, so my research primarily focused how differing severities of diabetes, different types of defects, severity defects. So one thing I've uncovered severe, the mother's diabetes particularly, you're more likely to get heart defects, but you also get craniofacial and tube defects. So those are defects of the head, skull, jaw region, but also of the spinal cord. So you get the anencephaly, where there is, well, um, the brain grows outside the skull. You get spina bifida, where there is non-closure of the spine, and so the spinal cord also uh, pouches out. Um, you can get cleft palate, you can get cleft lip. There's a lot of other defects that come with this, with increasing severity of diabetes. But the most prevalent that I've seen in every severity, every, even the mildest forms, you see heart defects. And so I'm yeah, trying these to... are all pretty severe, disfiguring, and, you know, uh, I mean, horrible for your health defects. Absolutely. And so um, I'm trying to look at if when these defects have concept, what is their unifying factor? It all seems to range back to a subpopulation of... Uh, progenitor cells and perturbation of these they form the heart and they form the brain and spinal cord so i want to look at how these cells are disrupted by um high blood sugar and if i can really understand how they're affected by it perhaps i can reverse engineer that when is the um i, I guess i don't know i just don't know when when is the placenta form fully at what point in the pregnancy to be sorry I, I didn't get you there oh when when does uh, the placenta form during pregnancy maybe there's a correlation there it's maybe it's not fully formed early on and i'm actually also investigating um placental defects as well um my study and it seems that again with increasing severity of diabetes you're getting very poor formation and vasculation which could also be the reason why it gets these defects it becomes a little bit complicated because then it's is the infant getting these defects because the placenta isn't properly formed or is it getting these defects because of the maternal diabetes becomes a sort of, I suppose, chicken and egg scenario. I don't know. Is there data on when would the placenta be observed in, in pregnant women? Is there any studies where they did look at, I don't know, changes in placenta or thickness or composition versus what happens to the baby? There have been studies. But remember, if you're trying to look at it in YouTube, you don't have as much information as if you can look at it um, post parturition, so after birth. And again, the placenta, the studies on that aren't brilliant at the moment that I know of, but because it's not really my field of expertise, I can't really comment much further on that. Yeah, it's a tricky problem. It's a tricky to find this. Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to have a colleague whose expertise is placental. And so when I do tend to dabble in that field, I can uh, hit her up for um, stats and, and her knowledge. Well, maybe that's uh, an initial thing to to do to know if you're you know which direction you should focus in i mean it seems just like a yeah like you said you're only one person there's a there's a lot to look at here and a lot a of confounding factors in fact i've written um a, a big proposal to actually look at all of the things you've suggested to look at again further investigate why these things happen to look at the uterus look at the placenta so hopefully it'll get funded <laughs> anything anything jump out at you in the data like um do boys um, have more defects than girls? Are the defects different between the two genders? Um, I don't know. Any, anything that could be a signpost for you that would tell you where to look? Again, th this is a little bit um, mixed because many of the studies which I have read, uh, many of the clinical studies, they don't necessarily put sex on the results. It'll mostly be just composition of defect. And so, again, it's a little bit complicated the ones that I have seen, there haven't been any difference between 
um, what type of defects boys or girls get. But again, the numbers are very low. The numbers that have reported it rather are very low. The number of studies. Maybe you go backwards. Maybe you look for births where there was a particular defect and then you go back and you ask for the um, patient's medical history, you know, and you, of course, anonymize it. But maybe that's a way to uh, gather a cohort without having to, you know, do a lot of clinical work. You, you know, the data is already out there. It's just not being looked at in this context. Maybe that's another way to approach it. Absolutely. That would be a great way to approach it. So now that we understand more about, for example, heart attack and how it presents women, this could also be a key fact. Men and women, no reason why. So what you need is like this big lab where you're the head of it and you have like 10 postdocs all looking at different aspects of this problem and millions in funding. It sounds like that's what you really need. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> well, it's important. I mean, the whole generation of people coming and, and now, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, if a lot of them are born with defects, I mean, that's a huge problem. It's absolutely this research because, like I said, it's going to get worse. I'd like to think that it's not because it's uh, only affects a subpopulation, women and their... I'd like to be not so cynical, but... Um, is there, I mean, with the current uh, coronavirus stuff, is there any funding for COVID and how it affects pregnant women? Maybe that's a way in for, I don't know, some additional funding or, you know, not that you wouldn't study it, but maybe that's a way to backdoor and learn some of what you need to learn. I don't know. Uh, it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because I am trying to get the wheels and to look at that as an additional study. Because again, the, the data is there I, I to see where it leads. I mean, our prime minister's partner exited COVID, possibly even to sure, and she's just had a baby. Huh. And I think it might have mature as well. I'm not sure. Maybe not quote yeah. me on that. But, um, okay. Who knows I, that would be interesting to, I wouldn't want to frighten anybody, of course, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, very good. Um, is there anything that uh, that's really important that I missed that I should have asked you that you want to bring up? Um, don't think so. Oh, one thing I, I would like to that. Um, mm. So with um, congenital heart defect, 1% of the population are born with heart defect, respected diabetes. And whilst a large percentage of can be, I say a large percentage, about only 30% of these cases, genetic mutation, for example, Janssen, which leaves around 70% maternal environment. So things like diabetes, commonly known um, alcohol consumption, viral infection like rubella, all these sorts of things. So gene-environment interaction, I think, really is where the focus of congenital heart defect studies are moving, or well, they already are, actually. Okay. Very good. Nikita, what's the best way for people to get in contact and, you know, provide you with ideas and help and insight and, you know, follow what you're doing? The best way to get in touch with me would be to check out my webpage. Um, it's, um, or they could email me, but my webpage is at DPAG. So it's the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at the University of Oxford. If they just type in my name there, they can find me. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you thanks for coming on. And I appreciate what you're doing. It's uh, vitally important. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.